Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4. And verses 1 through 11. Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I want to consider tonight grieving a decreed destruction. So, verse 1 of Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And we'll stop there, because the following section is really the heart of the book of Esther, And I want to deal with that on a separate occasion. So, we have these 11 verses before us. You remember in Daniel chapter 4, how King Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with praise for himself at the glorious Babylon that he had built, that he took to himself almost the praises of God. That it was he who had created and had made this this wonderful city, this glorious city. And he was given that vision, you remember, of how the the, the great tree was cut down and just a stump remained and and, uh, there was a wild beast uh, in the fields. And he couldn't quite understand or grasp the significance of what that vision or that, that dream meant until Daniel explained it to him. And Daniel's language is quite significant because when Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that it was God who was revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar, he said to Nebuchadnezzar these words, O king, God has decreed. Or, 
God has decided, or God has determined. And of course, the tree, Nebuchadnezzar, cut down, becomes like a wild beast for seven years and is chained out there in a garden and really, truly turns almost like into a wild beast. And uh, until, of course, it is God who brings him back to sanity and he realizes that God is actually the one who rules over all the earth. You remember in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, or I should say even before the birth of Jesus, the Bible says that Caesar Augustus issued a decree. A decree that would tax the whole world or be a census to record all the peoples of the Roman Empire, the Roman world. I don't think Caesar Augustus gave one single thought to the villages of Israel, particularly the village of Bethlehem. That by issuing a decree that was a royal command, he gathered all to return to their ancestral homes, which meant, of course, that Joseph and Mary go to Jerusalem. And so, uh, to Bethlehem, I should say. And so you see that even a foreign pagan emperor of an empire that existed 2,000 years ago can make a decree and yet it is entirely the purpose of God that Jesus our Lord be born in Bethlehem and it's that decree that caused Joseph and Mary right around the time she was due to deliver her baby to actually go to Bethlehem. Those are just two examples in the Bible of the power of the word, of the power of a decree. We know here now from Esther chapter 3, which we have considered together, that Haman has issued a decree. And the Bible is at great pains, or the book of Esther is at great pains, to instruct us that it was an edict, it was a copy, it was written, it was a document, it was a decree, so that we might be under no illusion that some order has come from the throne of Ahasuerus, from the king Xerxes, king Xerxes himself. A decree that... Uh, sets about or aims at the complete extermination or the destruction of the people of Mordecai and, of course, the people of Esther. And really, that's what the book of Esther is about, right? The purposed, planned decree of Haman to destroy all the Jews, particularly because he is venting his personal animosity against that one man, Mordecai, who refused to acknowledge him and refused to bow down before him. So he wants to gather all the Jews and kill them all at one time. And what a striking example of the power of man. And yet nothing we know happens outside the plan, the purpose, the control of God. That when God makes a decree, it is a decree or a determination that stands forever and forever and cannot be changed. That what God has decreed to take place and to happen actually always totally takes place and happens. It is not up to man, neither can man change the decree of God. You might say, well, look at uh, Hezekiah when he was sick and he prayed to God. God had already told him, set your house in order because you're going to die. And then he prayed to God and God gave him an extra 15 years, you remember, and added those on to his life. And you might say, well, you see, Hezekiah's prayer actually changed the mind of God. No, it was the mind of God that would cause Hezekiah to turn to him in prayer, seeking God to be merciful to him. And God, by grace, had determined to give him those extra 15 years. Because God cannot be thwarted. God does not change his purpose or his will. So, here 
in the book of Esther, Haman's purpose, Haman's plan, of course, is to destroy every single Jew. And it is motivated by, I suppose, what has become now an obsessive hatred for, Haman, uh, for Mordecai. He, he's just pouring out all of his animosity, his personal antipathy towards this man, Mordecai, because of the refusal to acknowledge who he is. And it has resulted, as we have seen, in an empire-wide... Uh, decree or proclamation that aims at the extermination in 127 provinces ranging from India to Ethiopia, which is a massive territory, ruled by Xerxes, to exterminate in every single province, which would mean in every single village, in every single hamlet, in every single town, wherever a Jew might be found, that they were to be destroyed by the Persians. Anybody who was not a Jew was to kill a Jew, and so on. So it's a very systematic plan, all on one day, by the way, as we remember, that on one particular day, they're all to rise up and destroy all the Jews. You remember how chapter 3 ended, if you look at the end of chapter 3, it ended with confusion, didn't it, in Susa, the capital. And you notice that, by contrast, Haman and Ahasuerus, they seem oblivious to the confusion that is out there in the capital, that's out there in the city. Because the Bible says they sat down to eat and to drink. They sat down to drink particularly. Confusion by the populace at the end of chapter 3 gives way in chapter 4 to deep distress. And this distress is because Haman has issued this decree in the name of King Ahasuerus that it has now become understood by the Jewish populace right across the kingdom. They've all now received the edict, they've received the decree, and they can't believe it, that they are to be killed on a particular day. It's like you and you receiving a letter uh, in the mail, I suppose from the authority, saying that on this particular day you will be killed. All of us, on one particular day. I dare say that I don't rule that out, that kind of thing. If it can happen in Esther's day, why can't it happen in any other day? And so the shock of it is, is on the pages, on the, the surface of the Word of God, right? It, so that when you get to Esther chapter 4, Esther chapter 4 becomes the pivotal chapter because it is the response of Mordecai to the decree of Haman. And it, uh, it approaches so openly, so, so profoundly what we have been saying is veiled at this moment the doctrine of the providence of God. Now in chapter 4, that, that doctrine of the providence of God is just going to thrust itself forward, particularly uh, when you get into verses 12 to the end of the chapter of chapter 4, when Esther ultimately says, if I perish, I perish. And so the doctrine of the providence of God is now open for us to think about and to seriously consider, even though I've tried to, uh, I think, bring it to our attention, our minds and hearts already. So it's now going to stand out in the text. Now, when you look at verses 1 through 11, you will notice just two things, right? This is all about responses between Mordecai and Esther, back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. In verses 1 through 3, Mordecai responds to the decree. And in verses 4 through 11, there's this back and forth conversation between Mordecai and Esther, or Esther's response. And Esther's response, by the way, to Mordecai takes a multifaceted approach. She has a number of objections to what Mordecai is really suggesting. So the remaining verses, as I said, verses 12 through 17, are again a conversation held between Mordecai and Esther where he really 
presses the issue. If you don't do anything about this, if you don't rise up at this very moment, someone else, some help is going to rise from somewhere else. And so who knows whether you came to the throne for this very matter, for this very reason. So now you get to the heart of it. Why is Esther the queen? All of the shenanigans that have gone on before, right, with the deposing of Vashti and, and how uh, Xerxes or the Persians have gone about in choosing a new queen, you see it now in the light of the fact that it is God who is orchestrating all the events behind to bring this young woman to the throne so that she might be there at the right time for a particular reason and a particular purpose. I say God because we cannot exclude from our own lives, even in the nitty-gritty, even in the insignificant events of our lives, God. We cannot exclude God. In fact, it would be wrong, it would be sinful to not say that God is everywhere active and everywhere working. Even when we rebel and sin against God, God permits such things that He might deal with us however He deals with us. And so as we come to this chapter, I want us to think about these things because they lie so clearly uh, in the book of Esther here. So what stands out, of course, is that this back and forth between Mordecai and Esther is never a face-to-face -face conversation, right? I mean, it's by, it's by a eunuch in between, a go-between, who goes to find out, why are you mourning Mordecai? Why are you dressed in sackcloth and ashes? And he brings back the response. And then he goes back. And so there's this, conf this constant uh, lack of face-to-face -face, uh, conversation uh, with each other. And of course, we must say, the reason for the lack of face-to-face -face conversation is probably due to Esther's position. She is secluded. She's in the palace. She's away from the public eye. She just doesn't go down for a little stroll to the king's gate and say, Hi, Uncle Mordecai. How are you this morning? She doesn't do that. She can't do that, right? She is in her place. And in order to communicate, she, she uses one of the eunuchs of the king who has been assigned to her, this man Hathak. And don't forget how important the role of eunuchs are in the book of Esther. So significant they are. They're used by, by God, it would appear, for the very purpose of communicating a number of things, whether those things are for the good or for the evil. And their involvement, of course, is significant in the book of Esther. So chapter 4 is about a crisis, a crisis of national proportion. I suppose when Germany invaded Czechoslovakia in 38 and Poland in 39 and subsequently ushered in the Second World War, that that was a, a, a moment of epic proportions of national disaster and calamity, certainly for Great Britain because their Prime Minister had come home after having discussions with the, Brit with the German uh, Chancellor, Mr. Hitler, and said, it's peace for our times. And of course he was completely deceived by the Chancellor of Germany and uh, that was his plan. And so Neville Chamberlain had no, no idea of the consequences of making a proclamation, it's peace for our time. To bring about six years of fruitless, in one sense, destruction of humanity, or, to put it another way, the planned systematic extermination of a particular people, which is horrifying and horrific, and yet human history is laid, laden or loaded with that kind of national crisis. So what goes back and forth between Mordecai and Esther is, how can we escape this tragedy? 
that has befallen our people? How can we deliver our people? How can we set our people free? Certainly that's uh, at the very forefront of Mordecai's mind. Esther hasn't quite got there. Mordecai must bring her along to reveal to her in these conversations and discussions the imperative of standing forward, of putting herself in a place of danger to represent her people and to unfold before Xerxes himself this planned destruction. So any crisis, of course, is a time whether it's a crisis you experience or we experience corporately is a time to consider the ways and the means that exist that we, by whereby we can avert or avoid the crisis. I mean, if a crisis happens to you tomorrow, you want, you want to know how can I get out of the crisis? How can I avoid it? What can I do to deal with this crisis? That's just human nature. That's just how we naturally respond to these kinds of things because those kinds of things, these crises are not normal. They are abnormal. We recognize them as such because we wish to escape them. If they were normal, we'd welcome them and live quite happily and comfortably under them. But, but we don't somehow do that. You get bad news of your health. There's a reaction. You hear a tragic, uh, the, the, the loss of, of, of a tragic loss of life. You react. And so on. This is human nature. This is how we respond. This is how we react. But there is supposed to be a difference between Christians and how we respond, and how the world responds. In fact, the Bible is abundantly clear that the response of a Christian rests ultimately not in their sorrow and not in their loss, but in what God is doing. So that every single crisis, every single tragedy, every single problem that any of us face must be seen in the light that it is God who is dealing with us. That's the Christian response. The world has no no recourse. It has nowhere to turn to. It has nowhere to go. How sad for them. Sometimes we forget that about the world, how, how much pain in pain they are, how much in darkness they are, and don't and are unable to help themselves or do anything about it. But the one thing that we have to realize is that when crises come to our lives, it is precisely at that moment that two things must take place. Number one, our resting in God, and number two, our responsibility to God. That because we are to rest in God does not mean we are absolved of any responsibility to God. And just as we are always accountable to God and responsible to God, ultimately that accepting our responsibility is resting in the will and the purposes in the mind of God. So the Bible never teaches that that old evangelical doctrine of let go and let God. The Bible doesn't teach that doctrine. Right? That's the old Keswick doctrine. I grew up with that doctrine. It was everywhere present in the circles in which I grew up. There's no such thing as let go and let God. No, God has given us responsibility. In fact, I've discovered that that kind of doctrine, let go and let God, has never helped anyone yet. Not one single person. Nope. God doesn't just do what you demand of Him or expect Him to do. Let go and God will take care of it. No, God only and always, He will do His will, that which He has determined, that which He has decreed, but He has given responsibility to us, to His people. In fact, all men are accountable, aren't they, to God? Every single person who is born, every single person who lives, is accountable to God, is responsible to God, even more so believers, because we know that which is right. 
We know that which is, is godly and that which is holy. My responsibility is to seek out the will of God and to know the will of God and to do the will of God, not to debate the will of God because I know God is always right, and not to doubt the will of God because I know that God is always good. So don't forget those two things. Don't doubt the will of God because God is always right. And uh, Sorry, debate the will of God because God's always right. And don't doubt the will of God because God is always good. So keep those two things in your mind. God always does that which is right for me and God will never see me go through evil. What I may think is evil, God sees as for my good, for my benefit and so on. This element of personal responsibility is all over Esther chapter 4. It's right here in the text. It's Mordecai who reminds Esther of her personal responsibility to do something. Because of all the people in the kingdom, she alone possesses the power to maybe do something. She is Jewish, like Mordecai, like all the Jews in the 127 provinces. She alone possesses the power, possesses the authority to maybe bring about a change. The question is, will she avail herself and fulfill that kind of responsibility? Mordecai, of course, stresses, you notice in verse 14, that if Esther is not going to do anything, if Esther won't help, then help will arise perhaps from some other place. Life is filled with crises, if you haven't discovered that. Life is full of them, isn't it? Who knows what this week will bring forth for us. For the Christian, handling, the ability to handle any crisis, all crises, requires faith in the Lord, requires trust, requires dependence, requires our, our dependence on the ways of God. Why do you do that, God? Requires our dependence on the will of God. Why have you ordained that God? These are the questions we might ask ourselves like Job asked himself. And yet ultimately we come back to like the end of the book of Job where you see Job in repentance before God. He says, I thought I had, I had an idea of who you were, but I had really no, no comprehension. You are above and beyond. And doesn't, you know, when you read chapters like uh, 38, 39, 40, 41, where God just talks to Job about who God is, right? Where were you when the, the deer gave birth under the bushes, Job? Who did that? God. Where were you? Where were you when the hawks and the eagles and the, all the beasts uh, did what they do? Where were you, Job? Where were you when the mountains came forth? Where were you when the stars were made? Where were you, Job? Yeah, you were nothing. I was there. I am God. And this, I think, is what, what this kind of book is like. This is a book that, that, though it never mentions God, says a word about you, God, is so eloquent about God. That when you begin to, to study it and explain and try to understand why is this book in the Bible, well, it's there because the Holy Spirit put it there, wrote it, gave it to us. That then you begin to understand that God is involved completely. So I want to consider some of the things that we find here. <coughs> Notice verse 1 and 3. Verse 1 and 3. They begin with deep sorrow, don't they? I mean, Mordecai takes off his clothes, he tears them, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he goes in the middle of the city and he cries with a loud and a bitter cry. 
not only Mordecai, but in every province, verse 3, <coughs> there's great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them are lying in sackcloth and ashes. So it begins with deep sorrow, but if you go down to verse 16, it concludes with distress by Esther, who says, Look, go and gather all the Jews to Mordecai to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So from deep sorrow to, well, whatever happens, it's going to happen. Verse 1, you'll notice Mordecai exhibits his grief in a particular way. He tears his clothes, doesn't he? And he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And in verse 16, Esther calls for this fast. From all the Jews are in Susa. Gather all the Jews, Mordecai, in the capital and fast with me. No eating, no drinking for three days. And she and her young women would do the same. All of those responses are simply about grave humiliation, right? I mean, you don't really read... Today, I suppose in some cultures you have today where people express great grief by the tearing of clothes. There are cultures that do that. Weeping and wailing, right? Great distress. But we are far removed from an understanding of what it means to tear your clothes and put sackcloth on you and ashes on your head. Because those are the symbols of death. Those are the symbols of profound loss and extreme distress. And you notice in verse 1 that Mordecai has learned of this planned execution uh, by Haman of all the Jews. Why? Because he read the decree. He read the document. He saw the edict. Everything that was written down and had been clearly recorded as chapter 3 verse 12 says, right? An edict was written in different scripts and languages, all written in the name of King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Chapter 3 verse 13, the letters are sent out, instructions are given. Chapter 3 verse 14, a copy of the document uh, is issued as a decree by proclamation and the decree is posted in Susa for everyone to read. I mean, you can't miss this, this paper. This document, this edict, this decree, you can't miss it, it's everywhere. That's how Mordecai learned it. There it was. Maybe he was passing by on his way to his work and saw the decree, this paper. What is that? Only to read about the purposed planned destruction of all the Jews in the kingdom. You will notice in verse 5 that it would appear, I think, on the surface that Esther probably had really no knowledge or grasping or understanding of this decree. She wants to know why Mordecai is mourning. Why is Mordecai grieving? And probably that's due maybe to her seclusion. Maybe she has, through young women and the king's eunuchs, like the text says, received some information, but she really doesn't understand. Why are you, Mordecai, in mourning? Why are you exp uh, expressing this great distress? Perhaps because she lives in seclusion. We don't know. Verse 1 also gives us the standard Old Testament rituals, right, for catastrophe, for bitterness, for extreme grief. That these feelings of profound sorrow are so expressed by the tearing of the clothes and the wearing of sackcloth and the putting on of ashes. It's a bitter experience. It's a profoundly bitter experience that Mordecai and the rest of the Jews are going through. In fact, Sometimes I think that's the kind of attitude we should all have towards our own sins. 
And yet, when we look at our own sins because of grace, we sometimes treat them, I think, a little cavalierly. Too, too much just on the surface. Instead of really grieving. When God, when God uh, uh, calls us to confess and repent, it's this kind of bitterness for sin that we're supposed to have. And yet evangelical Christianity seems to me to be far removed from that personal expression or a public expression of grief and sorrow for sin. You know, during the times of the Puritans, coming out of the Reformation, but during the times of the Puritans, both old Puritans in old England and new Puritans in New England, along with Jonathan Edwards in New England, whenever they experienced uh, times of, of uh, uh, calamity or distress or physical or spiritual uh, times of trouble, they proclaimed days of humiliation, days of fasting, days of grieving, where they set aside the time to, to pour out their complaints to God, to bring themselves to God and ask God, why, what is this all about? To put themselves into the hands of God. We tend not to do that. You might hear a sermon on the depravity of man or the sinfulness and the willfulness of, willfulness of our rebellion and get up afterwards because the sermon is over and kind of forget about it and talk about something else. That's how shallow we have become. God's word, God's expression of his hatred for sin is exactly that. He hates it. And we need to learn how God hates sin so that we too can hate sin. If we could be like God's, have God's attitude towards sin, how different we would be. Right? I speak to myself because I understand and see these things from Scripture, yet how weak I am in fulfilling them. What Mordecai does is to humiliate himself publicly. Right? Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, weep and wail and go and stand near the king's gate where everybody can see you as they pass by through the king's gate. Can't go into the king's gate because nobody is allowed to be in there with the symbols of death, right? Sackcloth. So he stands outside and everybody who goes through the king's gate, doesn't matter which way they go, must pass Mordecai who's weeping, mourning, and in this great grief and distress. So he humiliates himself, tears his clothes. It's not a private display, but it's a very public display, isn't it? He went out, the Bible says, into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. You remember how the sons of Jacob brought home the torn garments of Joseph, soaked in goat's blood, and how callous they were. Is this your son's garment? They said to their father. You remember how Jacob, the Bible says, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth, put it on his loins, it says, when he heard the news about Joseph. And he never changed from that day until he saw Joseph again. He grieved and he grieved and he grieved and he grieved. You might say it was excessive and obsessive. It was. But that's what he thought. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, David, the Bible says... And his men took hold of his clothes and tore them when he learned the news of the death of King Saul and Jonathan. The Bible says they mourned, they wept, and they fasted until evening time. You remember the king of Nineveh? He heard the preaching of Jonah. And what did he do? He repented. 
he took off his clothes, his royal robes, and he put on sackcloth, the Bible says, and he sat in ashes to represent his repentance, to represent his grief when he heard that God had ordered the destruction of his city and every single Ninevite. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel prays his great prayer of confession, with pleas for mercy, it says that Daniel fasted in sackcloth and ashes. Here's a man far removed from Israel, an exile, a godly exile, far removed from the tragedy 70 years prior, which he himself had come out of uh, just before the 586 destruction, been taken to Babylon. And here's this man who, as he realizes the 70 years of captivity are over, tears his clothes and weeps and mourns before God because he realizes we are only here and have been here for 70 years because of our sin against God. The Greek historian Herodotus, he says that when the Persians were defeated by the Greeks, which is fresh in the memory of Xerxes, right? It says that all the Persians wept and mourned and put sackcloth on at the loss, defeat by the Greeks. So Mordecai goes in verse 2, doesn't he, to the king's gate, but he doesn't go into it, as I've said. But everybody passing by observes this man in this awful condition. You remember how Job reveals his condition, his humiliation in Job 16. This is what he says. He says, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. I've sewed sackcloth onto my skin. I mean, I don't really understand what that meant, but it's as if he has become one with the sackcloth. And there he lies in grief. When Joshua and Caleb listened to the whole nation of Israel say, let us pick a new leader and let us go back to Egypt because Moses is bent on our destruction to bring us to this land where these Canaanites are, are giants and we can't take the land. The Bible says Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. They grieved. They mourned. So verse 3 indicates here that it wasn't just Mordecai, but in every province, all 127 of them, all the Jews are doing exactly the same. There's lamentation, there's bitter wailing, great mourning among the Jews. The Bible says fasting, weeping, lamenting, and sackcloth and ashes. Now this repetition, by the way, of these symbols of death is to remind us that this was a crisis of national proportion, that this affected an entire people group and their destruction. If you are uh, inclined to understand or study biblical chronology, you will know that in Persia, both Ezra and Nehemiah are probably alive during this time. They have been like Esther captives, and they have been raised in Persia. And they, their lives will be lived out not under Xerxes, but under the son of Xerxes, Artaxerxes. And so it's quite, uh, and I believe it's totally possible, that within 20 years of what Esther is going through here, or what uh, the Jews are going through here, both Ezra and Nehemiah would have been acquainted with such things. And so the symbols of death, because of tragic news, because of impending disaster, I mean, what would that sound like in 127 provinces? What would that sound like in the city of Susa? Perhaps it would sound exactly like Pharaoh and his entire people, the people of Egypt, lamenting and mourning the killing of the firstborn. 
that at midnight, two, death, every firstborn, all dead, even beasts, animals, all dead, everything Egyptian, not under the blood, dead. And how they raised a bitter cry. This is what this morning is all about, right? So the result of all of this is that Esther gets to hear of this display of Mordecai, verse 4, right? You remember, chapter 3 ended with gluttony and feasting. But chapter, uh, chapter 3, sorry, chapter 4 begins with grief and fasting. What a transition, what a, what a change. And Esther, she doesn't really grasp Mordecai's grief at all, right? She sends clothes to him. She doesn't say, oh, you know, I got it. I understand why you're grieving, Mordecai. No, she tells Hathak, look, take clothes to him. Tell him to change his clothes. What, what is he doing? So she sends clothes to him, but he refuses. He refuses the clothing. And she sends her eunuch, Hathak, to find out, verse 5. So he goes down to the open square in front of the king's gate and to talk to Mordecai. And Mordecai explains to him Haman's plan and Haman's purpose for their destruction. The, the, the planned entire destruction at the cost of 10,000 talents of silver that Haman has promised to pay. In verse 8, Mordecai provides proof. He gives a copy of the document of the written decree. Now, you know, uh, I suppose we are more inclined to believe a copy or a document signed officially than word of mouth. If you give me something that's official with a letterhead on it, I'm inclined to say, yeah, okay, that looks official. But if you tell me, look, this is what you've got to do, I'm like, well, you know, let me see the proof of it first. And so, what does Mordecai do? He gives a copy of the document. He says, show that to Esther. Take that to Esther. And of course, Hathak will go back and give that document to Esther. This is the first time, by the way, that openly you sense the leading or the connecting between Mordecai and Esther as far as their nationality is concerned. Because previously, Mordecai had said to Esther, don't tell people who you are. Don't reveal your nationality. But now... Already we know that Mordecai is mourning because he's a Jew and the planned destruction of himself and his people. So now for the first time, Esther and Mordecai are linked openly, it would appear, by their common nationality. And Mordecai wants Esther, he commands Hathak himself to go to Xerxes. Tell Esther, go to Xerxes. Plead, ask for favor on behalf of her people. Notice how he uses the language, her people, Esther's people. Her people. Now the interesting thing about that is of course that the moment Esther begins to plead, she reveals her nationality. The moment she goes to Xerxes, that's what Mordecai is saying. You go to Xerxes, you tell him who you are, and you tell him that you're a Jew and you're one of them and plead his mercy and his favor. By doing that, Esther reveals exactly who she is. And notice that Esther 4, verse 8, that stands in contrast to all the previous words of Mordecai, don't reveal who you are, back in chapter 2. But Esther sends Hathak back, really, doesn't she? Providing excuses. And these are her excuses. Listen to them. She says, nobody just goes to the king. I can't just approach the king, right, without being called. And not only that, but I haven't been called for... 30 days. So nobody just goes to Xerxes and says, hey, I, got, I need an interview. We need to talk. 
<laughs> Nobody approaches King Ahasuerus like that. And not only that, but she looks at the record and says, for a whole month, for 30 days, Xerxes hasn't even bothered to be near me. Hasn't called me. There is a suggestion here, underlying the text, that perhaps the ardor, the love of Xerxes has cooled a bit towards Esther. For 30 days, his wife, the queen, yeah, he hasn't been called in before Ahasuerus. And Esther, what she does is she takes the least place of vulnerability. She takes the least place. She says, but Mordecai will not let get her get away with that in verse 13 and onwards, right? Do not think that you yourself, in verse 13, in the king's palace will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So he rejects her excuse. Ah, can't go to the king. He hasn't called for me anyway. Now Esther is citing Persian law, right? When she says, you can't just go to the king. Nobody can approach the king. Persian law restricts access to the king. You had to be called. You couldn't just show up, right? Herodotus says that the Persians... They put that law in place as a means of protecting the king, preventing assassination plots. Ah, you can see that it works, right? Nobody can just rock up, show up, and say hi to Xerxes. Not going to happen. So there's protection. That's the Persian law. Esther recognizes the law. She cites the law to Mordecai. Everybody knows Mordecai. You can't just go up and show yourself to the king. There is, interestingly enough, in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, that Haman, it would appear, can appear without invitation. Because the king says, remember suddenly, who's in the outer court? Who's there? Oh, Haman has just walked in. Oh, bring him in. And then, of course, the great disaster for Haman begins to unfold itself, right? Esther chooses not to send a request to see the king. Because she believes she'll be ignored. He hasn't seen me for 30 days. Why would he receive me now? That's really what she's saying, verse 11. And she reminds Mordecai of that law, right? Everyone knows, verse 11, you don't approach the king without an invitation. So how do you get an invitation? How do you get to see Xerxes? Well, you would have to make an inquiry. You'd have to make a request. You'd have to go through the proper channels, whether it's the king's eunuchs or the king's officials. However it is, you would go through them, and they might then go to Xerxes in council and say, look, there's been this desire to approach you, to see you. Uh, are you willing to see? And then the down through the channels it would come, yea, you can see, nay, you cannot see, whatever it is. Okay, now, brothers and sisters, those are just the facts of the text. You can read them. But I want to draw your attention to some things out of the text, if I can. For example, all of us should know and realize that life's circumstances and life's crises are and can be life-defining, changing moments. For example, as a father, at the birth of our children, so I'm there for Calvin and Caitlin and Bradley, who's with the Lord, and Stephanie, I'm there for them all. I'm there. It's a life-changing moment. <laughs> It's, uh, life is never the same, right? You walk in, you're not a father. You walk out, hey, you're a dad. And life is never the same, right? Or, you have grandchildren. I've got nine of them now. 
they're all life-changing. <laughs> Every one of them is a life-changer. Right? They're all different. Your life, is, your life is never the same. These moments, and, and by the way, that's just the birth, the appearing. All the interactions with them from that moment on are all life-defining and life-changing. Sometimes for good, hopefully, Lord willing, for good, but sometimes not so good. Right? So, all of life's circumstances are and can be, and most times are, life-defining moments in our lives, in your life, in my life. Now look, Esther has not revealed who she is. What does that mean? She's been masquerading as a Persian. She's been masquerading as a pagan. That's what she's been doing. She's living there in, in, with Xerxes, as a Persian, as a pagan. Not even Xerxes knows who, who, who she is and who her people are. Not even Haman. He hasn't even found that out. So she's living as a Persian and as a pagan. Her circumstances have defined her life. This is how she's living. She's assimilated herself. Long Mordecai to, to an extent as well. This, they've assimilated themselves. To turn that around is no easy task. To change any life-defining moment for us is no easy task. So for Esther to reveal her Jewish nationality might come as a surprise or even a shock to other Jews in the kingdom. I didn't know that. I didn't know Esther was a Jew. I didn't know that she was the Jew, whatever it might be. Now listen, there are life-defining moments that come your way always because God sends them. God sends them. And He wants to know what you're going to do with them. Are you going to rebel against them or are you going to receive them? What are you going to do when you are faced with something that is life-changing, that is different? That demands that you do something. That demands your responsibility. That you take action. I love what Jesus said, right, in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now you cannot claim, and I cannot claim, to love the Lord unless we obey His word. Unless you obey His word, you can't say that you love Jesus, right? It's interesting that Jesus uses those two words so profoundly in John's Gospel. If you, if you, if you. Let me give you some of them. For instance, John chapter 13, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know them. Or, if you have love for one another, then all people will know that you are my disciples. John 13, 35. Or, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that a good one? If you ask me, right, John 14, 14. Or, if you keep my commandments, you will abide, you will remain in my love, 15, 10. Or, if you do what I command you, you are my friends, John 15, 14. If you, if you, if you, if you. Isn't the real issue... Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? Will you? This is the change now. This is the reverse. Will you obey my commandments because you love me? And so on. So regeneration for all of us is a life-changing, life-defining event, isn't it? It is life-changing. Your life is never the same after regeneration, right? But 
Regeneration is only the beginning, only the starting point of life's decisions that you will have to face. Now that you are a Christian, you face those decisions or circumstances or crises differently than you would have prior to your conversion. There's no question about that, right? Or there ought to be a change. Sanctification is about your transformation, about daily transformation. And sanctification in the Bible is active rather than passive. You don't just sit back and you'll become holy. Right? You can't just take the passive approach. You have to take the active approach to holiness, to godliness. So obeying the Lord is always momentous. No matter what the circumstances are. In fact, it is better than the alternative, which is disobeying the Lord, right? So to obey the Lord is far preferable, of course. I ask myself, what else can I learn if life-defining life moments are, are important for me as a Christian, what else can I learn about this? Well, I learned, for example, number one, that praying should involve a grief for sin. Okay, I'm approaching God, and I'm just coming to God, and yes, I can come to God because my sins, thankfully, have been paid for by Jesus, but sometimes I have to come to God because of my sin. Right? And I have to confess to God my sins. And I should do that in grief. I need to realize that all my praying is part of the providence of God. That God has ordained praying as a means for me to come to Him. You want to know how to come to me? Pray. Pray. But not only praying, but I learned that predestination, which is not my means, but God's means and God's determination is part of God's providence. That lying behind all the events and all the circumstances of my life, your life, all of our lives is the predestined predestination of God. Worked out in His providence. In all the events. So I have to think about that. God has decreed and determined all things beginning to the end. And I'm in there. And you're in there. Thirdly, circumstances, every circumstance of your life, you're going to have maybe five, ten tomorrow, I don't know, but you're going to have circumstances tomorrow. Circumstances of your life are always opportunities to see the sovereignty of God in action. The circumstances that happen to you are always the privileged opportunity for you to witness God's sovereign purposes at hand. Close at hand, because they're your circumstances. God working on your behalf. And you know, when God works, and we see it, that should prompt all of us to love Him more, right? To seek to serve Him more, in spite of the obstacles that the circumstances or crises bring. We should love Him more, because of the circumstances. Number four, I see commitment. Commitment has consequences, right? You know, when, when, when you're young, you, you, you read about fairy tales. Fairy tales always have wicked stepmothers. All of them, right? They seem to always have some wicked stepmother. And what is the wicked stepmother like, really? Well, I love you, but I hate your children. So if you want me, the children have got to go. By the way, that's an attitude that exists in the world, right? That's sheer cruelty. I'll take you, but not your children, right? That's the Cinderella story. All of those fairy tales, right? You cannot say to God, I love you, and I will commit myself to you, but you know those people at church? Hmm. I got problems with them. You can't do that. You just can't be like that. 
Because those people at church are supposedly your people. Your people. You can't just say, well, I love you, Lord, but I can't. Those people, I don't want anything to do with them. (laughs) Sorry, you can't do that. Okay? You see, to commit to God involves committing to others. And that really is what marriage ultimately is all about, right? A commitment between two people to each other. Christian marriage is you cannot have God and not your spouse. Or you cannot have your spouse and not God. Christian marriage is the spouse and God. Always. If you have the spouse, you have God. If you have God, you have your spouse in Christian marriage. It's a beautiful thing, really. So Esther has come to a life-defining moment. And I don't know when I might face another life-defining moment. Could be tomorrow. What's she going to do? Will she entrust herself to God? Now, I say to God because you might say, well, how does she know God? It's a good question. Just remember that Ezra and Nehemiah are very godly Jews who are probably alive during Esther's time. She's a little older than them maybe 17, 18 years older. But they're alive. There are godly Jews out there. The traditions are passed down, oral traditions. They've always been like that in the Jewish community. And so they're familiar. And I have an inclination that Mordecai and Esther are familiar with those traditions, even though God is not mentioned. Will she entrust herself to God? Will she be prepared to give herself away to save her people, if necessary? Will she be prepared, will I be prepared, will you be prepared to accept the cost which would define you? How can you ask that, Russ? Because God is sovereign. That's exactly what God asks you when he brings sovereignty to work in your life. You see, you can't do it. I can do it for you, and I do do it for you. Do you see me in it? Or will we blithely pass along, pass by, ignore, reject, refuse to see God's hand in our lives in the bad and the not-so-good circumstances? We're very quick to blame others when it's the not-so-good. Very quick to praise ourselves when it's good. Providence is the doctrine that tests or proves whether your knowledge of God is really practical or not. Not theoretical, because I know the theory, but what about the practice? The providence of God is the doctrine that tests or proves your knowledge. So William Plummer, he said that we we need never fear that God will be dethroned or defeated. We need never fear that God will be dethroned or defeated, because he cannot be. So when God is silent, God is still sovereign, right? When God is silent, God is still sovereign, still working, still accomplishing His purpose. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism has a beautiful definition of providence. It says that the providence of God is the almighty and the everywhere present power of God. I like that. The everywhere present power of God. Not future power, present, right now for me providence of God. So the Lord controls the weather, the Lord controls calamities, the Lord controls kings and queens, the Lord controls all the nations. 
So George Swinock says that the greatest angel depends on God for its existence just as much as the smallest, minutest atom. In fact, everything depends on God. Your breathing, your living, your family, your life, your career, your marriage, everything depends on God ultimately. And so often we just take, take the sovereignty from God and apply it ourselves and trouble happens. Tragedies occur. And yet God is in control of all of those things. A decree of destruction should cause us to trust God more, right? To throw ourselves upon Him. That's why Calvin is right. Providence is God's ever-present hand on my life and your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for these great truths that we've considered tonight again, which are precious to us. We can never get enough of them, Lord. May they sink deep into our conscience, sink deep into our lives, that we might love them and live according to them. You are merciful and gracious to us in all your dealings with us because you love us. And so we should cast ourselves upon you totally and completely commit ourselves to you Entrust all the things that we have no control over, no power over to you, because you control them anyway. So help us, we pray, to adore you, to love you, and to praise you more for these things. Thank you for your word. Now thank you for this day, this Lord's day, and the beauty of it, the sweetness of it. Go before us uh, into the night and bring us again here to worship next Lord's day. We ask your blessing upon your people and upon our, us as we part. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.